0: In just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. Armorall, All. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. The streets of Paris are packed with cheering crowds, all waiting to catch a glimpse of the automobile that had done the impossible, driven all the way to France from Peking, China, more than 10,000 miles over some of the world's roughest terrain. The date was August 10th, 1907. Almost a year prior, a French newspaper called Le Matin had challenged the world's burgeoning auto industry to prove the supremacy of their cars by means of a race across Asia and Europe. Many thought it couldn't be done. After all, the automotive industry was in its infancy and cars weren't seen as reliable as horses yet. It had been just two decades since Carl Benz patented the world's first production motor vehicle and Henry Ford's Model T wouldn't debut for another year. The Chinese didn't even have a word for car yet, but thanks to some of the very first maniacs to ever fall in love with cars, it happened. And just two months after the race began, the first place finisher was parading down champ This is the story of the first race from Peking to Paris.
2: Podcast. it's, it's, it's Champs-Élysées.
3: God damn it, Joe. Oh, uh, Champs-Élysées. <laughs> Do-do-do-do-do. Oh, do, do, do. uh,
1: Champs-Élysées. Do-do-do-do-do. Anyway, welcome back to Passcast. I'm your host, Nolan Sykes, joined as always by my other hosts on the show. Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> uh, James Pumphrey. Hello. Toot toot. And Joe Weber, and I extend another hello to you too, sir.
2: Uh, keep it juiced. Keep it juiced.
1: Well, today we're talking about <laughs> uh, the first trans, uh, not transatlantic, one of the very first motor races in <laughs> but, history. You know,
3: it's still pretty good. It's not like they drove across the Atlantic or nothing, but, uh, you know, it's far too.
2: Wait, is this the race that Whoopsie Goldberg was in with a <laughs> car with
1: Seth Green? Mousetrap, starring uh, Nathan Lane. Um,. <laughs> Love that movie when I was a kid. Not that that has anything to do with it. I think we should just get into it. How about that? (laughs) It's all right. In January 1907, a challenge appeared on the front page of Le Matin. James, could you give give me your best French accent here?
3: Uh, Is there anyone who will undertake to travel this summer from Paris to Peking by automobile? Whoever he is, this tough and daring man whose gallant car will have his dozen nations. Watching his progress, he will certainly deserve to have his name spoken as a byword in the four quarters of the Earth,
1: <laughs> Dang, yeah, so uh, uh, we all know this quote already because uh, this I did not realize this, but this race is part of the very first episode of Wheelhouse. Yeah, why are race cars red? Uh, anyway,
3: the newspaper dubbed it a stupendous challenge a stupendous challenge. <laughs> it would mot- be a stupendous challenge for any man with any car. Le no horses allowed. No horses <laughs> allowed. <is> Le, <alert. laughs>
1: <laughs> Le <Matan. Matan. laughs> organized the race with two goals in mind. The first was publicity for the paper itself, and the second was to promote the French car industry, which had not gained the same traction as manufacturers from Italy, England, and the United States. Using the somewhat recent spread of the Telegraph across Asia, they planned to publish live dispatches from reporters traveling with the race to drum up excitement for both. Initial interest in the challenge was high, with over 40 entrants submitting their intention to participate, but uh, by the time the deposit of 2,000 francs, or about $35,000 today, was paid, but- the field was whittled down to just five. Most fervent among those were two men of completely opposite means and personality. I feel like we're gonna get some protagonists in the story now.
3: Oh yeah, but they're an odd couple. <laughs> one of them's messy and one of them's neat. <laughs> On one side was Prince Sciponi Borghese, a well-known Italian diplomat, explorer, and mountain climber who had previously journeyed across Asia from Beirut to Peking, which is now known as Beijing. Mm. Upon reading the call to action in Le Moutin, he immediately wrote to the newspaper that he would be participating, which helped lend credibility to the challenge. His no-nonsense demeanor was clear from the start. He quickly commissioned a car from an early auto manufacturer based out of Turin, Atala, and began uh, meticulously planning his journey. What? This is the guy. This is the, the
1: guy who had the red car, the Atala mod. It was. Uh, this had, is the
3: guy. This, this, this is, is the guy. guy I was telling you about. Yeah, I believe Prince. this car had
1: about 40 horsepower. The Skipon. Prince,
3: Prince Barghese. Borghese enlisted the Russian petroleum company Nobel to deliver fuel deposits across the Russian empire at no cost to him. Sponsorship, baby. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Friggin' fuel companies have been sponsoring races since the beginning. At this point, gasoline was more commonly used in dry cleaning than in cars. (laughs) So Nobel had a huge incentive to prove that it was possible to drive through Russia. Borghese also brought on his personal mechanic a former train engineer named Atori Gizok. Guizardi. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Borghese also brought on his personal mechanic, a former train engineer named Itori Guizari, to accompany him on the trip. On the other end of the spectrum, professional driver Charles Goddard could best be described as a charming lunatic. You know
0: know the
1: type. One of those swashbuckling types, you know?
3: Yeah. Probably
0: wears
1: like a... Like a, a leather bracelet,
0: mm-hmm. like a
3: bracer. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. He's got like a the heartagram tattoo. Yeah, he hangs out Bam all the time.
3: Yeah, he's got <laughs> Chelsea boots for sure. <laughs> he's got to be so sexy. We don't care that he's a stick in the mud. We still want him. Yeah, we still want him on our team. We still want him <laughs> at our dinner table. You know what I mean? Uh, So on the other end of the spectrum, uh, from the sexy Italian Prince Borghese, on the other side of the spectrum was sexy professional driver Charles (laughs) Goddard, who could best be described as a charming lunatic. When the challenge was announced, Goddard was riding motorcycles in a small Parisian stunt show called Le Wall of Death. (laughs) However, he managed to secure a spot driving for the Belgian company Metallurgy. Metallurgy. <laughs> I think <laughs> it's just metallurgic. Metallurg? <laughs> <Metallurgic>. Yeah. Uh <laughs> <Metallurgic-y. laughs> he had managed to secure a spot driving for the Belgian company Metallurgique in the Peking to Paris raid, as it was being called at this point. Le Matin had decided to reverse the order of the race to avoid China's rainy season. While the other entrants were worried about the hazards of off-roading over countless mountain ranges through the Great Wall of China, into the Gobi Desert, across Siberia, and down through mainland Europe, Goddard was delighted. He simply loved driving, despite not knowing a lick about how cars actually worked. Sounds familiar. <laughs> Cole Trickle, Days of Thunder. Loosely based on Goddard? Unfortunately for him, Metallurgiki or... <laughs> Metallurgique Metallurgique got cold feet about the cost of shipping a car and driving to China. Godard was disappointed but not deterred and traveled to Amsterdam to convince a Dutch company called Spiker that sponsoring an entry in the raid would more than pay for itself in publicity.
1: That's awesome. I didn't know that Spiker had been around for that long. Um...
3: I I assume Spiker is an energy drink. (laughs) Yeah. Drink some spiker. It'll give you spines. It's made out of heroin. It, it's 1907. Drink spiker energy. It's made out of cocaine.
2: It's got radium. Now with radium. Now with 20% more radium.
1: I just imagine that there's a lot of pulp from the ground up sea anemones that they're
2: using in oh the formula. What if there's just like ambiguous pulp that you don't, they don't ever say what the fruit is from? Just pulp.
3: Spiker's got everything you need to be healthy. Hooves. <laughs> meat fats. Cocaine. Mercury and radium. Spiker was interested but the company was nearly broke. To make matters worse, mere weeks after Limedine published the challenge, company co-founder Hendrik Spiker spelt different and a British banker whom, it must be a coincidence, and a British banker whom he had convinced to lend the company funds were both killed in a steamship accident while traveling from oh England God. to Holland. It's Crazy. But Henrik's older brother, Jacobus, liked Godard's passion and agreed to give Godard, hey, don't make fun of him, his brother just died. Come on, guys. I know. Yeah, his, but his name, name is, is hilarious. His, his name is Jacobus. <laughs> Jacobus is... Um, <laughs> and agree, and Jacobus agreed to give Godard a car and lend him the entry fee. He's probably like,
1: uh, Yeah, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you can have a car. <laughs> hey, man, yeah, I know your brother sorry. just died, but can I get yeah. that entry fee real quick?
3: Yeah,
1: okay, cool, man. Yeah, really sorry <laughs> Taste about that. Um...
3: Taste the Taste, taste. taste this. Yeah, okay. it's a new <laughs> formula for Spiker. Yeah. you um. like, it's hey, got more gunpowder in it. Yeah.
1: yeah it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of, uh, ooh.
3: What's did that sh-
2: pulp I'm tasting?
1: Yeah, what's sh- that? that pulp? Don't That's
3: worry about the pulp. Did you see your good. pants?
1: Did you see your beard? I have, am I gonna <gasps> in my pants? Did it? Did that drink just make you your pants? Um.
3: Oh! Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's still doing it. Yep, it's still going. Still doing it. Oh god, back to oh, the god. drawing board, fellas. It's it smells good. Good smelling diarrhea is a side oh, effect. Was really Biker. conflicted
1: on this product. Anyway, thank you for the entry fee. I'll uh, I got to go home.
3: Uh, though he told Goddard that he would not pay for anything else, Goddard promptly sold every spare part that came on the spiker to pay for his passage to China. Uh, of the other three entries, so this guy was just like broke, broke. Yeah, yeah.
1: he wanted to race, oh, man.
3: Broke, broke. Oh, you broke. He broke. was a guy,
1: he was a stunt. He was a motorcycle stuntman in stuntman, stuntman in Paris, like in 1907. Yeah, he's probably not making a ton of money. Like he's not the great Godard. He's just a guy in like a motorcycle stunt. Sorry, ensemble.
3: Yeah,
2: he's like the guy at, at Universal Studios that does the water world show 10 times a day and risks his life for like 50 bucks a pot. Yeah, right. he's
3: not the great Godardies. Charlie, 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 I need you to ride to uh, need you to ride into a lion's mouth this afternoon. Okay. I will give you a bonus of uh, a piece of bread. It's uh, 11. You're too kind to me. Of the other three entries, Georges Cormier was the most formidable driver. He was a car salesman for the French company De Dion Bouton, who hired him to lead their two entries. He recruited a quiet countryman named Victor Corignon to drive the second vehicle. And between them, they shared a mechanic from De Dion Factory. A veteran shipbuilder named Jean Bizac, who had somehow never ridden in a car before.
2: (laughs) Yeah,
1: I just work on him. I don't ride in him.
2: Yeah, not for me. Not for me.
1: <laughs> I get car sick actually. So I don't know. why I'm going on this ten thousand mile journey. Uh, well
2: yeah, you've I'm never been, been in a car. How do you know uh, that you've been car sick?
1: Uh I mean
3: uh uh <laughs> I've ridden on America around <laughs> You put that car in a you put that car in the ocean though, you call it a boat. I've been on a boat. Never been never sick
1: been. on a boat. <laughs> never been
2: seasick.
3: <laughs> like Borghese's, how all three of us
1: are doing this one guy. <laughs>
3: yeah. Sean <laughs> yeah. uh, Bezac, Love it. Borghese's Italo was the most powerful of these four entries, sporting 40 horsepours, yeah, weighing baby. over a ton fully loaded with gear, which is not a lot.
1: Not that much. But with 40 horsepower,
3: it's pretty low power-to-weight ratio. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the Spiker sported a more modest 15-horsepower engine, While both the Dion's produced 10 horsepower, but they all outpowered the fifth and final entry, a six-horsepower, three-wheeled Moto Tri, driven by the enthusiastic young Auguste Pons and supported by his mechanic, Octave Foucault.
1: I wonder if Augusta Pons is related to Lele Pons, you know? Or Fabrizia
2: Pons.
3: Or Fabrizia Pons. Or Augustus Gloop. (laughs) <laughs> that's how i picture him you know oh i brought my motor try and i'm oh, going to motor try my best
2: the, the, i like the idea of the fattest entrant in, in this race in a three-wheeled car that has the least <laughs>
1: horsepower yeah here we go
3: Pons picked the Moto Tri, the three-wheeled, because it weighed only 700 kilograms, half of the Spiker, and a third of the Italia. With and a quarter miles, of Pons himself. And a quarter of Pons himself. <laughs> I like it because it's small. <laughs> with countless miles of rough terrain ahead, the men figured that if they ran into anything they couldn't drive through, they could simply... Pick up and carry the car instead. It, so I mean, like it. This thing still weighed fifteen hundred pounds, so they'd both be like deadlifting seven hundred fifty <laughs> pounds on, on yeah, mountainsides. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, I would just carry it over the mountain.
2: <laughs> it's amazing how like it seems like little foresight went into this race when it's really just like a life or death thing. Like you mm-hmm. mess one thing up and you're dead. Yeah.
3: Uh, the five drivers... Hey, yeah, and there's like no medicine. Still. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, hey, hey penicillin- they got spiker. It. They got spiker. Yeah. Oh so. yeah, they, they, all, they got a free spiker. But uh, <laughs> yeah, like if you break your leg in a city, you're probably going to die or lose your leg back then. <laughs> the five drivers and the representatives agreed to a June 10th start date. And only one major rule. All the entries had to stay together and help each other through the most dangerous part of the raid by caravaning until they reached Moscow, at which point it would be every man for himself to Paris. With that, they set off on ships to Peking. Using his foresight and tremendous resources, Prince Borghese traveled ahead of the others to survey the path out of Peking and into the Jundu Mountains. He scouted on horseback, carrying a wooden pole exactly as wide as the Italia to make sure it would fit. That's smart. Cool. Smart. Yeah. Very smart. Elsewhere, Goddard quickly became the life of the party on the ship he shared with the other entries and the Le Matin journalist. Even as he struggled to acquire more funding for the trip via telegraph, but little did they all know, the raid was under threat of ending <gasps> before it began. Whoa! China's
1: foreign council, known as the Waiwapu, didn't want it to happen. China was just six years removed from the end of the Boxer Rebellion in which an anti-imperial Chinese faction tried to eject European trade powers from the country. The European powers eventually won through sheer military force, but the Waiwapu's leader remained suspicious of the West. He assumed that the raid was a cover for European spies to sow discord in the Chinese mainland, or possibly a test for a land invasion from the West via automobile.
3: I think those are Legitimate concerns. Pretty reasonable
1: concerns, I will agree. And as a result, the Chinese government's position was to be as unhelpful as possible to these chichos, the term they invented for cars that roughly translates to oil chariots.
2: We should start calling cars chichos.
1: Chichos. Yeah, my chicho. Got the new chicho outside. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But because of the treaty that ended the Boxer Rebellion, The Waiwapu did not have the power to officially reject the racers. Instead, they did everything they could to make Le or drivers, cancel the raid themselves. And guess what, fellas? It almost worked. The raid was nearly canceled twice due to the Chinese government's efforts, which included a refusal to grant the drivers passports into Mongolia. The first time was before the majority of the drivers had left Europe. The second was mere days before the raid's official start. Maybe they shouldn't have called it a raid. Yeah, yeah. you know, branding is so important in life. Um, if you call they it a raid- They probably should have, like,
2: explained cars to Chinese people, too, before. It's like they're trying to bring these huge machines into their country and do a raid with them. Like, I wouldn't let those people in.
3: I don't know. They want to come do an oil chariot raid? <laughs> oh, is that cool? <laughs> I What? No. (laughs) I mean, if they
1: wanted an easier time, they should have called, yeah, not a raid, but like a um,
2: chicho. Uh, Fun run.
1: Fun run. A celebration of the automobile, perhaps. Something that's a little more like cruise. Something a little more uh, uh, um, benign, you know? A Toys for Tots. (laughs) Toys for Tots never raises any suspicion. So, anyway, George Cormier in particular worried about the driver's safety without passports. Uh, Yeah, and also saw business opportunity. These were the only cars in all of China. If the race was canceled, they could be sold for a tidy profit. Hey man, cut your losses, but make that money back. But Borghese and Goddard wouldn't hear of it. Both drivers insisted they would press forward with the raid, even if no one else did. Even if the government didn't issue them passports. Cormier and the Waiwapu both eventually caved to the pressure. And the race was on. The raid launched on June 10, 1907 with a lavish send-off from Peking. The rainy season had come early, muddying up the streets, but it wouldn't stop the festivities. Accompanied by fireworks and a military band, the cars roared out of the French ministry compound into the streets, crowded with Chinese citizens. Led by Cormier, the parade of cars made their way to the city wall and out the enormous gate of virtue triumphant into the surrounding plains. The race was on. Conditions were immediately terrible. Despite (laughs) Lamotan's attempts to avoid the bad weather, the early rain made the drive into the Jundu Mountains nearly impassable. All the teams were forced to hire porters to drag and carry their cars through narrow river gorges and up into the dizzying heights of the mountain range. So already they're not driving. (laughs) (laughs) This meant that each car had to be as light as possible. So... All the drivers had to dump many of the extra supplies they carried, except Borghese, who had the body of his heavy Atala mod removed and carried separately by an extra team of porters.
2: You got that cash. Why not?
1: Yeah, dude. Spend it. Goddard was sad to lose his food and drink reserves, especially that sweet, sweet Spiker energy drink, particularly (laughs) a free case of champagne he was gifted at the starting line. Why would you bring that with you? I mean, why why not wait till the end? Anyway. He was so broke that in order to pay for his accommodations, food and fuel, as well as the dog he adopted from a Peking market, <laughs> this dude's bringing champagne and a dog? Yeah. yeah.
2: Doesn't uh, seem like he's great at managing money. I'm just gonna say He that. really
1: doesn't, no. Yeah, he, uh, he scammed 5,000 francs out of the Dutch minister in Peking by falsifying a letter of credit from the owner of Spiker. So he's just, he's scamming it up. He's racing, scam, like, you know what? This might be one of the first like motor races ever, uh, but the the cliches of motor yeah. drivers are already here. You got the rich guy who just pays for everything, yeah. and you got a guy like Goddard who's just faking his way through it. He's like scamming the, people yeah. along the
3: he's way. He's
2: like the smoky eunuch character who's kind of a yeah. grifter.
3: He's
1: he's for definitely sure. played
3: by a young Harrison Ford, <laughs> but like CGI.
2: <laughs> Yeah. Harrison Ford.
1: Or the mm-hmm. kid from uh, 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 Solo. That guy did a great job. But anyway, it's just amazing that the, the, the cliche racer tropes are already here in like the first race ever. I'm just amazed by that. Anyway, including that debt as well as the money that he had borrowed from Jacobus uh, Spiker and the Lamartine reporter Jean Tutaïs. Uh, Goddard was in the hole 15,400 francs, which is over $250,000 today. And on top of that, his fuel was only paid for through the Russian border. So he had to still had a lot of things to figure out. Even with the reduced weight, the mountains outside Peking were dangerous for porters and drivers alike. Each car had to be dragged over the tops of boulders, risking damage to their primitive chassis. And then once they peaked each boulder, more porters had to pull on the car from behind or both of the car and the drivers would crash down the other side. Oh, my God.
2: Wait, so the drivers are just in the car as it's being pulled? (laughs) Why don't you help?
1: (laughs) Uh, Other areas of the path were too narrow, so the porters were forced to clear the way with pickaxes. Oh, my God. There's also the language barrier to contend with, and most of the workers ended up becoming opium addicts. In other words, (laughs) it was a slow-going journey. Come on, man. What a disaster.
2: (laughs) This is not even the first leg of it.
1: I'm already disappointed with these guys.
3: We'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find
1: August Pons in the three-wheel Cantal had especially bad uh, problems. His car was the easiest to lift, but is also terribly balanced. A passenger seat above the front two front two wheels, so it's not even. Oh my goodness! The, <laughs> the a passenger seat above the front two wheels made the car extremely front heavy. Uh, so Pons struggled to get traction with his single back wheel.
3: It's just a spinning back, Zell. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And even when he was able to drive it, the back wheel would bounce into ruts left by ox driven wagons, meaning the Kantal could barely steer through the narrow mountain passes.
3: Oh my God. I'm having a real hard time of it.
1: <laughs> but after several days of struggle, all five cars eventually made it over the mountains, through the Great Wall, and into Mongolia with Prince Borghese in the
3: lead. Just before they entered the Gobi Desert, the five teams shared a campsite along with the reporters who traveled in the raid Dutali of Limarton <laughs> Dutali of Le Martin in Godard's car and the Italian journalists Luigi Barzini and Borghese with Borghese and Edgardo Longoni with Comier. It would end up being the last time that the group was in one place. Pons set out first the next morning because he had been constantly falling behind the caravan. The other drivers followed, hoping that if Pons encountered more trouble, they could help him without slowing themselves. First was Comier and Collignon in the De Dion's, followed by Godard in his Spiker, then finally Borghese in the powerful Atala. To stay on track, the drivers followed a route laid out by telegraph poles between their campsite and the next stop a remote telegraph station where Le Matin had planned a fuel drop. Pons indeed ran into more car trouble, running out of gas well before the refueling point. What happened next is a point of contention. Pons had already fallen behind all three French drivers when he broke down, so Borghese, at the back of the pack, was in a position to know that Pons was stuck. However, when Borghese caught up with Godard that same day, he claimed that Pons was fine. Was it a (laughs) misunderstanding? Or was it sabotage? Either way, Pons never reached the telegraph station that night. According to the caravan agreement, Borghese should have retraced their route to rescue Pons and Foucault because he had the fastest car. Instead, Borghese told the others he would continue toward Paris. When pressed, he suggested that Pons would be fine because the drivers had not yet left inhabited land. The other drivers, when faced with returning to find ponds or letting Borghese get a day ahead in the raid, regretfully decided to push on as well. With guilty consciences, Godard and Dutali sent riders on horseback to find the Cantal. But when they found him, he was a fat skeleton.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's Uh, like,
3: (laughs) that's crazy. Yeah, it's like, I know we made this like packed, but like, yeah. Nah.
1: It's not like you're going that fast anyway. Like, why not just take the time? Like, you spent days carrying your cars over these mountains. Like, you can afford to burn some more time going to get the the other dude, you know?
3: Right. The race is a year long. Yeah. Come
1: on, man. Come Come on, man.
3: Come on, man. Before they could continue, the drivers faced another problem. The fuel drop had arrived with leaky tanks. Oh, no. So much of the gas had evaporated. Oof. With Pons absent, Borghese and the two De Dion drivers all took what amounted to their full share. But Goddard did not want to force Pons from the raid. He decided to take less gas and leave some behind in case Pons eventually made it to the station. Goddard is the gauze. He's a I,
1: good guy. I am rooting for Goddard here.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Because he's like a scallywag, but he's got honor.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Borghese just like immediately gave up all his integrity. Like, I do not Bye. care about.
3: I'm going to win. <laughs> the lone wolf does not care about the uh, weak sheep.
2: You had twice the amount of porters that we did. You're not a lone wolf.
3: Hey, uh, Even the lone wolf needs a porter or two. <laughs> <laughs> this noble decision left the spiker without enough gas to make it through the desert. Goddard wired to the next telegraph station where a larger fuel supply was waiting and asked the operator to send out a camel loaded with gas tanks to meet him. Wow. Goddard reasoned that he could borrow enough fuel from the, the Dions in order to reach the camel driver. But his level of worry was clear to do later in the day when Goddard realized he forgot his dog oh back at God. the telegraph station. Oh, no. But refused to return a retriever. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, it's just a. Do- it's 1907. It's just a
1: dog. This
3: is oh, dog.
1: I think the dog is better off, honestly, not being on this this <laughs> oh, journey. Oh, I
3: forgot my freaking dog.
1: If the oh. dog had stayed with them, there's a a above good chance it would be eaten. Yeah, I was about to say that. Yeah, good chance it would uh be be find its way into a can of spiker. If you know what I'm
3: saying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As the others made their way across the Gobi, Pons and Foucault remained stuck. The riders sent by Godard and Dutoli never reached him. The two Frenchmen spent several days stranded at the edge of the desert, nearly died of exposure before stumbling across a tribe of Mongolian nomads who nursed them back to health. After they were eventually rescued by a team from Les Montines, Pons claimed he was betrayed by the other drivers. That tricked me. His cantal was left to rust in the Mongolian desert. Dang. Meanwhile, Godard faced his own problems. He managed to beg some gas from Cormier and Collignon, but they claimed to be low themselves and didn't give Godard enough to make it through the desert. Uh, uh, sorry, we uh, barely have enough gas for ourselves. Yes, yes, we barely have enough gas for ourselves. Sorry, Godard. (laughs) When he eventually ran out, he tried to ask the Didion drivers for help a second time, but they rumbled past him without stopping.
2: So much for that ag- agreement. Huh? I was about
3: yeah. to say, I think this really Au revoir. shows, like, Au revoir, monsieur. in in
1: these dire situations, like they are like, you know, the lack of forethought that went into this. They're like, yeah, of course, we'll just have an agreement. We'll help each other to the to Russia. But then, yeah. like, when things start getting actually hard, and you have to start making these really hard decisions, like. Certain
3: people are going to, like, be dicks, you know? Yeah. Straight up. Well put. Straight up. That left Godard and Dutali stuck in the middle of the Gobi Desert as temperatures reached 116 degrees. Comier and Borghese both later claimed to have passed the camel driver with Godard's requested fuel, but that supply never made it to the spiker. Instead, Goddard and Dutali huddled in the shade of their vehicle for nearly two days, subsisting on dry cubes of condensed soup and drinking oily water from the Spikers' radiator. Oh, my God.
1: Dang, our boys almost died.
2: Wow. Yeah, dude. Dry cubes of condensed soup sounds really good, though.
3: I'm not gonna- <laughs> dry cubes of condensed soup. In the midst of their ordeal, they were discovered by a lone woman on Camelback who tried and failed to tow the car with her mount. Later that night they were passed by a caravan of merchants who left them for dead with their emergency supplies completely gone and Du Tali battling a case of dysentery he had picked up in China, a strangely cheerful Godard proclaimed he was going prospecting and wandered off into the desert. <laughs> what what <laughs> uh two hours later he miraculously returned. Of course he did, Godard <laughs> uh, and he was riding on horseback with a troop of Kungus tribesmen. Hell yeah. Via pantomime sign language, Godard managed to negotiate for the tribesmen to ride ahead and retrieve the Spiker's fuel deposit, plus lend the Frenchman two camels to start towing them towards the telegraph station. 44 hours after breaking down, Godard was back in the race. Wow. Hell yeah, our boy, that's such dude.
2: A, that's such a come up it almost makes me seem that, or makes it seem that they were just like on the edge of like a mountain or something and there was just like a tribe right over the mountain and they never thought to like <laughs> look <laughs> over
3: <laughs> meanwhile pre- that was really a beautiful joke. It was really well put <laughs> a lot of mountains in the desert <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile prince borghese was finally running into his own trouble finally after making it through the gobi the italia was the first entry to cross into russia where the route promptly ran into a large lake. Lamatine had given the drivers permission to put their cars aboard a ferry to cross the lake, but Borghese was determined to drive as far as he could. Attempting to circumnavigate the lake forced the prince, his mechanic Guizardi, and the reporter Barzini to cross a series of wooden bridges that had fallen into disrepair. They developed a foolproof technique to get across the Rickety Bridges. Drive as fast as possible. <laughs> This worked great until it very spectacularly didn't. Halfway around the lake, one of the bridges finally gave way and sent the car tumbling backwards into the Ooh. river below. Local police officer had been traveling alongside the party, immediately ran for help, and then immediately uh, puked. He, uh, he puked, it was so gross, assuming that the three Italians were dead. But amid the disaster, luck was still on the prince's side. They landed on a duck. And the duck took off and flew them all the way to Paris, and they won. The end. Wow. Wow. Amazing story. (laughs) Wow. What's up?
2: (laughs) Follow me on Instagram.
3: JK, it's not the end. Uh, He and his companions escaped the wreck with just bumps and bruises. Some nearby rare workers helped Guizardi repair the Italia, and they were back on the road within three hours.
1: Borghese realized that the bridges were too dangerous to cross and instead came up with an even more dangerous tactic. They would simply drive along the Trans-Siberian Railway instead, (laughs) and that meant dodging the trains running along the same single rail, which quickly proved to be very treacherous. After one very narrow escape from an oncoming freighter, the prince called in some new favors and had his Atala added to the rail schedule as its own train line so they could avoid more close calls.
2: That's some print stuff right there. That
1: is some print stuff. It was in this way that Borghese made it all the way to Moscow, while Goddard was still stuck in the Gobi Desert. And meanwhile, Cormier and Collignon kept going at a more modest pace and reached the European border in Russia. After blowing past Goddard and Dutalis in the desert, Cormier later described his part of the journey as fairly luxurious. The Dedions had a hefty supply of traveling food and were welcomed with lavish parties being thrown by the racing delegations in almost every town in Russia. Sounds pretty pretty fun. Perhaps part of the luxury was knowing that he was now quite far ahead of Goddard and quite far behind Borghese, so there's no need to rush. If so, that sense of complacency betrayed him because Goddard, after nearly dying in the desert, somehow drove for 24 hours straight to catch up with the De Dion's in Tomsk, Russia.
3: Ha ha, it is I,
2: Kadar. <laughs> but you are dying in the desert. But I did not
3: die. I am friends with the tribesmen. <laughs>
2: we got a camel to drink a bunch of gas and walk <laughs> out to the <laughs> desert and meet you, then throw up all over your car.
0: <laughs> ha
3: ha, never underestimate <laughs> <last met> Gadad. <Cazard. laughs>
1: <laughs> He's got a sword now. He's yeah, wearing a mask.
3: Yeah, dude. Godard from, rules. For,
1: from there, Cormier, Collignon, and Godard go! agreed to resume it is
3: me caravanning
1: through Siberia. But Godard quickly ran into car troubles. To keep the spiker running, he successfully plugged a hole in his rear axle with raw bacon. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> despite the ingenious and delicious quick fix he was eventually unable to continue after the caravan tried to fjord a river and his magneto got wet nobody wants a wet magneto
3: wait
2: did
1: you, you say mo- fjord
2: Fjord a river
1: fjord a river yeah say it Joe
3: <laughs> say it I see your face <laughs> a fjord, a fjord is, a, is a body of water but you try and ford a river what
1: if you try to ford a fjord
3: yeah, you could afford a fjord. Can you afford a Ford to Ford the f- a fjord?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can afford a Ford a fjord. The Ford.
2: <laughs> ah, you said it.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway, nobody wants that wet. Magneto Goddard thinking quickly. Goddard sent a telegram to Jacobus Spiker. Telegrams requesting-
3: like an like an aim or a BBM. Yeah, it's like a two a yeah, like, you like-
2: ever been on your two way and you sent like an Excel sheet to your friend? It's basically the same thing. <laughs>
1: Goddard sent a telegram to Jacob Spiker requesting a mechanic and some spare parts. Spiker, who had com- who had previously concluded that Goddard was Hold a on con I have something man. really
3: important. There's something really important. I have four hundred and one thousand Instagram followers now. Nice. So I need a really good four oh one K joke. Uh um <laughs>
1: Do you have something about how you should probably start your four oh one K? yeah
3: guys start your 401k oh well let's just go back to the dumb podcast
1: we'll get back to more past guests but right now a word from our sponsors So anyway, Spiker had concluded that Goddard was a con man and unlikely to even start the race, uh, but was back on board to help because of the huge publicity the raid was bringing his company. European audiences were hanging on to each and every dispatch of oh, the man, journey. Oh, man, can you
3: imagine? Dude, like, that's, right. that's the so only thing sent, going on at the time. Yeah, they're sending yeah. telegraphs back and they're like, they're stuck in the desert. It's like, oh, no. It's like, he went and befriended the tribesmen with pantomime. He drove 24 hours straight. Yeah, he's back. He caught up to the Denial's. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was like.
1: Anyway, uh, yeah, Spiker sent a young mechanic from the Spiker factory and a crate of spare parts along the Trans-Siberian Railroad to go and meet Goddard But Goddard was not content to wait around. He put his car on a train to the nearest university hundreds of kilometers away where he found an engineering professor who agreed to fix the Magneto. And Whoa. once the repairs were completed, Goddard, remember, Goddard doesn't really know how cars work. Uh, Goddard returned to... What are you returned, talking
3: about? I got the bad guy from the X-Men, wet. <laughs> uh,
1: Goddard returned the train to, say to the say he is really a bad
2: guy, huh?
1: Where his car had broken down and raced uh, once again to catch up with Cormier, Picking up the spiker mechanic and his extra parts along the way. I mean, this must have taken like... This whole thing that I just read probably took like a week.
3: Oh, at least.
1: Or like a few days. Because like he's getting on a train. He's going hundreds of kilometers. Trains aren't very fast. Especially back then.
3: I bet it took a month.
1: A month? Mm -hmm. That would be pretty crazy.
2: He also had to like contact this professor. Like find the professor. Contact the professor. Agree to meet him hundreds of miles away. Set yeah. up his car to put on this train, like
3: right. It took so long back then, dude. And he definitely had like a love affair in there. Oh,
1: there's definitely like a very steamy, yeah, um, yeah, extramarital.
3: Well, no, he's he not had married.
2: Kids, he raised those kids up.
3: Tonight I am yours, but do not fall in love, for <laughs> I, the dog,
1: belong to the raid. Over the next thirty five hundred miles. Goddard was delayed when he found a baby who what? had fallen off the back of an ox cart, which he eventually was forced to deposit at a local church after failing to find the mother. What I the bet hell? He was definitely planning on bringing that baby with him for a, for a minute. He's like, you know what? Uh, I, I kind of this like baby. this little baby. How funny
2: would it be mm-hmm. if I showed up in Paris with a baby? <laughs> <laughs>
3: and people are all... Gadad, why do you have a baby? People and I, would laugh so hard for so long. <laughs> and like me, like me. That like I would be the funniest guy to yeah. <laughs> be have a baby. Sure.
2: Yeah, Borghese won, but he, does he have a baby?
3: <laughs> oh, sorry, I had to make a child by myself. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, he he was also briefly transported by a Russian countess who demanded passage in his car but left her in a field after she got <laughs> car sick on him.
2: Au <laughs> This could be a trilogy. Oh, Dude, for sure. This, this is brutal. definitely
1: a Netflix original series. But Godard drove day and night, including a final stretch of 29 hours straight to catch up with the De Dions. He found them in Kazan, Russia, two weeks after separating near Tomsk. The same stretch took Borghese three weeks to cover, and it took Cormier nearly five, so Goddard's definitely the best driver, I yeah,
3: think. Yeah, he's a Freaking ace.
1: He's a beast. This guy's a beast. He's going He's beast mode.
3: beast. He's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: that grueling journey wasn't even the greatest trouble Goddard faced, though he didn't know it yet. When he was dashing across Russia, a court back in Amsterdam sentenced him to 18 months in prison for frauding the Dutch minister in Peking. That credit scam caught up with him. Whoops. Prince Porgesi's lead continued to lengthen, even though he ran Wait, into his he was first. He in
2: jail for how long? No, he just had like a warrant out.
1: Yeah, uh, in Amsterdam, he sent. So when when he gets back to to Holland, he's uh he's going to going to jail for eighteen months.
3: <laughs> I love this guy, man. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty good. As soon as I finish the raid, I promise I will go to jail. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Prince Burghese's lead continued to lengthen, even though he ran into his first serious car trouble. While in Western Russia, the foot brake caused the floorboards to catch fire. Oh, my God. Flames crawled within inches of a spare gas tank before the journalist Barzini managed to put it out with the prince's fur coat. <laughs> Why are you bringing a fur coat with you? Catastrophe was averted, but the Itala had to make the rest of the trip with only a handbrake. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? That said, the prince probably could have won the raid with no brakes because of Goddard's breakdown and Cormier's, Cormier's slow pace, excuse me. After Moscow, the Atala was so far ahead that Borghese detoured 700 kilometers out of the way to be celebrated by the Tsar's government in St. Petersburg. <laughs> so he's chilling with those Tsars.
2: I wonder what the average speed for these cars, or at least Borghese's car at the time was. It couldn't have been more than like I bet 20 miles 50, per hour?
3: Yeah. Average yeah. really low
2: yeah it's got forty
1: horsepower though yeah pretty decent. how many horsepower does like a VW beetle have uh like forty and it it also weighs about two thousand pounds, right yeah, yeah, so I mean it's got some pretty decent speed, I would say this itala the Itala and Brint and Prince Borghese arrived in Paris on August tenth just two months after uh departing on the journey that the other drivers speculated would take them through New Year's, if it was even possible at all. So we're this whole time we're thinking like, man, this probably took like a year, took yeah. two months. That's crazy. His bet on maximizing engine power rather than minimizing vehicle weight had clearly paid off, and the French welcomed him, power, him like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> there it is, and the French welcomed him like a conquering hero, even though he was the raid's only Italian driver. After meeting again in Kazan, Goddard and Cormier decided to forget any bad blood from earlier in the race and caravan the rest of the way to Paris. All parties later said that the 265 miles from Kazan to Nizhny Novgorod... From... Oh my god. From Kazan (laughs) to Nizhny (laughs) Novgorod was the worst section of terrain they had faced, but after making it through, it was clear sailing to Moscow and the paved roads of Western Europe until... Godard was arrested as soon as they crossed into German territory. Oh my
2: god. Let him finish it. The arrest
3: was organized <laughs> by Ah! Le Martin! No! Who'd been minimizing the progress of the Dutch maid Spiker in order to make the Didion's look better in comparison.
2: Ugh. Oh, it's slimy.
3: The raid's organizers worried that Godard would decide to set off on his own and easily beat the two Didion's. To Paris because the Spikers' advantage in power. Aren't they going to learn? He doesn't think like they do. He's a stand-up guy. What a slippery, what a slippery, slimy snails these guys are. The French cars finishing last would have been an embarrassment to their automotive industry, particularly if the entry was driven by the boastful Godard. So, they had him arrested. But,
2: I mean, Borghese has already won it in an Italian-made car.
3: So. Well, they can't have it finished last. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Cormier and Collignon regretfully moved on without Godard. Yeah, right. The Spiker entry kept pace with them using a replacement driver who Jacobus Spiker had brought to the German border with the knowledge that Godard might face legal trouble. Just a few miles from Paris, Godard caught back up with the caravan at their final breakfast before completing the raid. He made a last desperate attempt to get behind the wheel of the Spiker and drive to the finish line, but he was pulled from the car by local police. Man. An emotional Dutali volunteered to drive the rest of the race, even though he didn't have a driver's license. (laughs) He told Godard, One of us, one of us has better do it. If it can't be you, it will have to be me. I'll take our end. Godard's response, Like hell you will! I'm not going to have you sugar up that old lady! What the (laughs) hell do you think you are, a driver? (laughs) Ha ha (laughs) ha ha ha! Ha 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 ha! I got my bang stick! I'm getting out of here!
2: (laughs) You are foolish if you think you can use your hands and feet at the same time like (laughs) me.
3: (laughs) Comier, Conillon, and the Spikers replacement driver were welcomed to Paris with much celebration, just as Borghese was. Godard didn't get to finish... But the spiker took second place despite Le Martín's interference, and Godard somehow wormed his way out of his 18-month <laughs> fraud sentence. Of course he did. Six months after the conclusion of the Peking to Paris raid, he was on the starting line for a race around the world from New York to Paris via Japan.
2: What is... We have to do that. Yeah, that's past gas. gas.
3: Well, it may not be well remembered today. Peking to Paris was a triumph for the automotive industry. By the end of the journey, Prince Borghese estimated the drivers had driven nearly 16,000 miles. And apart from Godard's wet starter, not a single car had any major mechanical failures. Uh, The massive publicity that the raid generated also helped the European public accept cars into their lives once the next wave of companies like Fiat and Ford made them more affordable. But more than anything, it helped prove that the automobile, the horselage carriage, the chicho, the oil... Chariot. Chariot. Really can go anywhere as long as the driver is crazy enough to take it there.
1: That's what I'm talking about, maybe. And if I, I remember correctly, the, the, the winning margin was only by about 60 minutes. Borghese was able to beat the Day De Dion's by 60 minutes.
2: This really makes me want to do the Gambler.
3: I would, yeah. as someone who did the Gambler in November, I would wait and do the one in the summer because Oregon in the summer is beautiful in Oregon in the winter very cold and very wet <laughs> I
1: kind of like the misery of it though that's yeah, what me it's, too. that's what's attractive to me okay. so maybe Joe and just, I will get some <laughs> other donut staff members out yeah. there if James wants to take this one on. dude Joe me Job mm-hmm. I think would definitely enjoy that yeah. I'm
3: just saying you're gonna have a lot more fun in the summer
1: I'm just saying I I'm a <laughs> glutton for punishment and it's I'll not. A, it's
3: not fun. You can't even do the race because, like, all the trails are closed and stuff. It's like, oh, not fair enough. Fun. Like, I think maybe they don't even do it in the winter anymore. No, they just
2: did it. I, I saw people driving through the river. Yeah, uh it's a different
1: vibe. It sounds like the summer one is fun.
2: Yeah, the, I, the I, winter I one I is. Agree is... with you, Nolan. I'm. I'm kind of a mud. Cook. I <laughs> would love to get out there and and you know, get stuck and have to like dig our way out and go through a little bit of trials. I but think you be can really do fun. that
3: in the summer and then it's like fun versus <laughs> like the winter where it just like you're like, and the end point is camping. So then you're just camping in the rain. That's a fair point. That's <laughs> a fair dark. point. Okay. Like it's just anyway. like, you're miserable for almost 48 hours.
2: Okay, I, I mean I do I've been miserable I, for like 10
1: months this year. I don't care <laughs> I <have> More misery. <laughs> anyway guys, thank you again. Thanks again for listening uh, I just like to acknowledge our source for this episode mad motorists the great peking perry race of
3: 07 by alan Andrews also want to give a big shout out to greg nix our writer and researcher for this episode and also bridget Always our producer and editor. Absolutely. With, so without further ado, bye. <laughs> uh
1: yeah, thank you for thanks for listening or watching Past Gas. We really appreciate it. This is like one of our favorite things to do. Follow the boys at Joe G Weber, at James Pomfrey, at Nolan J. Sykes, on all social media. If you want to know more of our thoughts on mundane. Bull- <laughs> um <laughs> thanks for listening. Be kind.
3: I love you. Keep it juiced.
1: See you next time.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find